with another panel episode of Radio versus the Martians. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Dornan, and we're proud and happy to bring you a topic that is near and dear to my own heart, fighting games. Yeah, this is one that I think everyone has some experience with, that whether you've been through a video arcade of any kind or a convenience store, a pizza hut that still has an interior <laughs> where you can actually sit down, there's going to be a fighting game there. And sometimes people are going to have experiences that are, oh, not so positive, perhaps? In today's episode, we get into a little bit of the ugly side of fandom we do. during High Point, Low Point. In the modern world of the internet, it is incredibly easy to see things that are embarrassing and toxic and ugly. So that's why this month's Radio vs. the Mailbag, this is our online blog question and answer with our audience segment that we do, we're going to look at the other side of that. So we asked you the question... What have you seen or experienced that's left you feeling really proud of or happy about pop culture fandom? Yeah, I think this is a great question. One that, Mike, you and I talk about uh, a lot is that a lot of people who do shows like us, the snarky takedown is sort of part and parcel of commentary. And there's a lot to love about the things that we love. And to report those things about the things that you love that make you feel happy, feel connected, feel like you're part of a larger community, the things that keep you coming back, that's what we really wanted to hear about. And I think Mike and I both had our own arm of fandom that we talked about, and we really want to hear about what you take away from the things that you love. So if you've ever had a moment where you felt good about fandom, despite the ugliness, just push that aside for a moment. Let's look at the good stuff. Go to our website, RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Let us know what you think. We want to hear what you have to say about this question. So this month we are talking about fighting games. Absolutely. And I think it's time for recommendations. Casey, sure. what do you have to recommend this month? Oh, there's a, I mean, I guess I could recommend uh, five years of playing Street Fighter almost every day. That could, <laughs> that could be one recommendation. Um, no, Capcom did a 25-year Street Fighter retrospective documentary that is on their own YouTube channel. I think you can just go to the Street Fighter YouTube channel and check it out. It is interesting because it's a sort of a, a survey of the people who sort of make the current tournament scene, which is really where the juice is at in Street Fighter these days, about why it's significant to them and why it's still going. And uh, my recommendation is not a thing you can watch, but a place you can go. And we talk a bit during the panel about the death of the video arcade as a place and actually is the cultural center around which fighting games and fighting game culture has sprung. But it's not dead completely. I think that one thing that is very encouraging and actually kind of exciting and fun is a resurgence of retro arcades that have been growing up around the country. Sure. There's probably one in your area, but around here, the place is called Dorky's, and it's in downtown Tacoma, Washington, and it is a great hub of all old school games. You can pinball games. You can play the original Star Wars hectographic thingy <laughs> it's a lot of fun i have fun playing things like dig dug and bubble bobble original punch out it's got more all three mortal combats it's right. got bad dudes versus dragon ninja <laughs> if you feel like a bad enough dude to rescue the president right. <laughs> it's got just about everything and we had a chance to go down there a couple weeks ago and we were able to play the ninja turtles game and a lot of other things it was actually really fun it does feel like you're stepping back into your childhood and that's something that's really rare because Arcades really have mostly disappeared from the earth. 
And what I love is it isn't just guys like us in our 30s that are there, but there's a lot of young people there as well. Yeah, obviously. That, that just because a game is old doesn't make it useless and also doesn't make it something that can captivate the young's attention. And I really see like a young kid who's like seven years old, like playing a game like Burger Time. It's right. kind of exciting <laughs> to see that these sorts of things are timeless, that there's something about these games that grabs us and that just because the new console has the fanciest graphics and the best sound doesn't mean there's something fun and of value in these old ones. So here, here. I would say check out Dorky's Downtown. It's a bar arcade and has way better food than it has any right to. <laughs> so uh, with that in mind, let's go to the panel. We'll see you folks on the other side. What do Mike Tyson, Raul, Julia, and the fractured fingers of thousands of American children have in common? If you guessed Street Fighter, you should try it for Jeopardy because you have some godlike powers of induction. Street Fighter is one of the most successful video game franchises of all time. It launched fledgling game developer Capcom into the stratosphere, but it also redefined a genre that went full bananas in the 1990s and brought about one of the most unique, frenetic, and to some, impenetrable genres of video gaming, we're talking about fighting games. The history of fighting games doesn't begin with Street Fighter 2. In fact, it doesn't even begin with the lesser-known original Street Fighter game. Opinions may vary, but earlier arcade games like Yi'ar Kung Fu and Karate Champ were the first non-sports games to feature one human opponent challenging another in versus combat. They pioneered the gameplay elements foundational to the genre, like the KO bar, jump attacks and knockdowns, the elapsing timer. But those early arcade games didn't inspire more than passing notoriety unless you count a Karate Champ cameo in the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie Bloodsport. It's entirely uncontroversial that fighting games grew into maturity in Year of Our Lord 1991 with Street Fighter II The World Warrior. It is the original blueprint of the genre and the standard by which all others are judged. But for the uninitiated, what is it? Street Fighter was, of course, a direct sequel to the original Street Fighter I. You play as one of eight unique brawlers in a one-on-one globe-spanning fighting tournament. Playing either against the computer AI or versus a human opponent, you attack your foe with a combination of punches, kicks, jump attacks, and so-called special moves. Powerful attacks that are unique to each fighter with their own joystick and button combinations to pull off. The goal is to pummel your way past seven other world warriors and then onto four next-level badasses, bosses, culminating in the final fight with a deadly red-suited general-cum-dictator named M. Bison. Street Fighter was notable for its fresh and vivid graphical style, its fluid and responsive controls, and the surprising depth of its gameplay. But its true innovation was leveraging a type of challenge that was underserved for its era. The difficulty of the game is not about beating a high score or making your way to the end of the game necessarily, but instead defeating the human opponents that are physically next to you. It was a face-to-face challenge, and it offered something even the best AI never could. That surge of adrenaline you got in besting a human. Unknowable, unpredictable, and a new challenge every time. And those best two out of three matches could be over in 90 seconds, or they could drag on until the timer ran out, depending on the skill of the players. There was a sense of pride and something akin to street cred that came with victory. Stacking your quarter on the marquee, standing in line, bellying up to the control panel, and eventually holding your own against an army of perfect strangers. That truly was the juice of that era. For me, it was an electric feeling to be a preteen kid with the ability to beat 16 and 17 year olds in a contest of reflex, skill, and endurance. 
It was honestly the closest I got to experiencing the high of competitive sports, and I'd be willing to wager that millions of other latchkey kids growing up in the 90s felt the same. Street Fighter would become a global phenomenon. It was ported to every computer and console imaginable and bootlegged mercilessly. It spawned cartoons, comic books, toys, tabletop RPGs, and one of the most infamous movie adaptations of all time. It was the third best-selling arcade cabinet of all time behind Space Invaders and Pac-Man, truly legendary bedfellows to have. Its console-exclusive port to the Super NES was one of the killing blows to the Sega Genesis. As if it needed more accolades, Street Fighter was almost single-handedly responsible for bringing arcades back for its second and final explosion of popularity before their ignominious death in the early 2000s. The Street Fighter phenomenon would also spawn a menagerie of sequels, competitors, and clones. Blockbuster franchises like Mortal Kombat, Tekken, Soul Calibur, and King of Fighters, to name a few. Also, the mad success of Street Fighter created a glut of game publishers racing to put out the next Street Fighter. Some were inventive, most were forgettable, and a few were downright dreadful. I'm talking about bikini karate babes, balls, clay fighters, a unique stop-motion claymation entry, and I'm not even shitting you here, Shaq Fu, starring none other than Shaquille O'Neal. Fast forward almost 25 years later, holy shit, I'm old, Capcom just announced the release of Street Fighter V. Nintendo has recently allowed Super Smash Bros. Melee to join the lineup at EVO, North America's biggest fighting game tournament, and Killer Instinct and Mortal Kombat have great new look offerings on the horizon, while dozens of indie developers are spinning up to build fresh new takes on the genre. Unlike so many fads of the 90s, fighting games are far from dead, and you can't say that about Stussy. This knuckle-cracking, quarter-vaporizing, toon-violence-fueled branch of the video game dynasty is the topic for this month's panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Let's meet the panel. Joining us for his first appearance on this show, founder of the Seattle Retro Gaming Expo, writer, podcaster, Nathan Martin. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Next up, returning panelist, producer, and host of Ask an Atheist Radio Program, Sam the Crusher Mulvey. I believe I'm supposed to be called Spouse now. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, Ken to my Ryu, Scorpion to my Sub-Zero, Mike Gillis. Thank you, Casey. Winners don't use drugs. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's fire it up for this panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. So, Nathan, what was your first experience with fighting games and what impression did it leave on you? So, my first experience with fighting games, not counting Urban Champion, uh-huh. uh, yes. was probably Street Fighter Two. actually. I was living in Guam at the time. Uh, it's a little island about a thousand miles south of Japan. It's in U.S. territory, but the arcades there would get all of the crazy Japanese games that you didn't really see over here. Oh, wow. That actually would have been a sweet experience. It was, it was very nice. It was right at the height of the arcade time. So we had one mall on the island, and that mall had one arcade, but that arcade was huge. It took over two stores. And when I first moved there, it was kind of your typical arcade, what you'd expect from like a Chuck E. Cheese. A lot of Donkey Kongs, a lot of platform-style games, and the kind of thing you would see before Street Fighter Two. After about a year of living there, Street Fighter Two had taken over one entire half of the arcade. <laughs> of course, <laughs> it did. Literally, I counted them at one point. We had 30 machines. The vast majority of them were Street Fighter Two, and then all of the crazy rainbow variations and the knockoffs that had the ability to shoot fireballs while right. jumping and right. all that crazy stuff. So really, I just got it you know, dumped right in. It was nice. a trial by fire. Uh, of course, along with the arcade machines came the, you know, before they were professional, but the dedicated hardcore players right. uh, that would come out there and kick everybody's butt. It cost a lot to learn how to play that game. Nice. 
Sam, same question to you. Were you an arcade gamer or did you first experience fighting games through a console or, dare I say, one that was ported to a home computer? (laughs) Well, uh, oddly enough, Street Fighter was the annoyance on my way to Altered Beast. (laughs) (laughs) I was very much an arcade game player back when I was younger. And when the fighting games were coming into the fore, bringing arcade machines back, as unfortunately I must agree with. But the games that I wanted to play, the stuff I wanted to play was always stuffed behind the fighting games. And I would always have to like walk around these huge wads of people to get to the games I wanted to play. And I would say that the tenor of playing video games changed for me a lot when Mm. role-playing games came to the fore, precisely because they turned into something more competitive than I was used to. It was like, it stopped being, well, what are you playing this week? And it became, well, what character are you playing and can I beat your ass? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're anti is what you're saying. Just a little. (laughs) Mike, do you even lift, bro? I I mean to say, (laughs) did you actually play fighting games or were they just something that you were aware of? I was aware of them. I mean, I went to arcades, and I think really when I think of my first experience encountering fighting games, it's an arcade experience. Of course. And it's a lost experience, I think, with few exceptions, Mm -hmm. which is you would go to any mall, you could go to any convenience store, there'd be at least one arcade cabinet there, and frequently at least one of them was a fighting game. One of them was basically, like Sam mentioned, a crowd of people around a cabinet, and you might see the top marquee. And it's like, oh, of course, Street Fighter 2. Right. Not just Street Fighter 2, but which version of Street Fighter 2? Because this was the age before things like DLC. So if you wanted to update the game, like add a couple characters, make certain characters that had previously just been bosses playable, you had to basically make the game from scratch and add those things in, get a new cabinet. Well, sort of. Wasn't Street Fighter sort of the implementation of the JAMA arcade standard? It wasn't JAMA, but it, uh, the CPS board is what it was. So okay, yeah. You're half right there, right? The it, original Street Fighter 2, wasn't that JAMA? It might have. I'm going to defer to you on this, name. I'm a little bit lost. Can somebody give me a vocabulary guy let's, like the beginning of Dune? Let's hardware just, land. Yeah, it's, it's just variations in hardware, but the thing that you're half right about is that you don't have to start from scratch. What they did is you could use the same boards and they could just drop in new pieces of RAM. Like a flash drive, right? So when they wanted to upgrade the cabinet, all they needed to do was send away for some new RAM, install it. You know, they're going to put a new marquee on it, maybe slap some more art on the side of the cabinet, and then they're good to go. They don't have to rebuy a whole new one. That seems like it'd be a much better investment if I was a convenience store, if all I had to do is add a couple hundred bucks rather than drop a couple thousand for a new cabinet. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, I think the main reason that I didn't join into those sort of situations is there was kind of a gunslinger mentality about it. And I'm just not very good at these games. Hmm. I mean, they're fun, but primarily I always played them on the console ports because I was going up against people that I could actually win or maybe even button mash my way to a surprise victory sometimes. Really, if I went to an arcade and dropped a quarter in there, really what I'm doing is paying for humiliation from a stranger. (laughs) (laughs) And I know there are some people that that, for whom that is their thing. (laughs) Maybe somebody with a mask and a whip can do that to you. But I really don't need an audience for somebody to kick my ass with a bunch of sprites because I would get my ass kicked. Hmm. But there's something about that experience that even as a spectator, I can enjoy because there is that, like I said, gunslinger sort of ideal where somebody's like, I'm the toughest guy around. Can you take me? And people would line up. And of course, this was something that changed the way that arcades worked. Because if you remember, a lot of old school arcade games are really fucking hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even though the games themselves are very campy and fun, and essentially what you're doing is running from away from a bunch of food products, trying to make a hamburger by walking on it, <laughs> that game is cutthroat. <laughs> it is trying to kill you because it wants your next quarter. I yeah. mean, Pac-Man is a fucking hard game. Yeah. 
So the thing that really changed with one-on-one fighting games is instead of a machine trying to kill you for your next quarter, you're actually fighting another human being who's standing right next to you at another joystick. That in itself is a revolution. And there's something about, as much as I enjoy playing these games on a console with my friends in my mom's family room, it really kind of comes down to the same experience I get when I drink Coca-Cola out of a glass bottle. There's just something intangible that makes it better when it's an arcade setting. That mm. Even watching it from a distance, it's entertaining. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I think there's another aspect to that that we don't really get here in the U.S., which is this idea of, not anymore anyway, it's this idea that there's your local corner market and that's got the Street Fighter machine and you know the people that you're running into and right. competing against. Maybe yeah. that's the only way that you interact with these people. Right. And then it becomes important to have the high score or, you know, to be the best person there. Whereas in some cases, it's not about that at all. It's about making the most out of your quarter. So yeah, I was not very good at Street Fighter 2, at least compared to the people who were there all day long. I don't know how they did that, but... <laughs> I was very much of the make the most out of your quarter yeah. you know, style of gaming. And definitely that was one thing that arcades had, I think even before the Street Fighter revolution, mm-hmm. was that going to the arcade created a context with people who you wouldn't otherwise know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, when I was going to school, big surprise, I was kind of a nerd and people ignored me. <laughs> and that was that. School, I was a nobody. School, nobody really paid attention, at least in that phase of my life. But then I would go to the arcade, and there were some games that I was really good at playing, mm-hmm. and that created some conversations. And then after a while, people were making the connection between the guy at the arcade and the nobody at school. And they're like, oh, wait, this guy's a real human being. And it mm-hmm. created a social context, and it right. made me some friends. And I can't imagine the, just the revolution of fighting games and how it, it brought people together in head-to-head combat and gladiatorial combat that yeah. I can imagine some friends were made that way. And one of the interesting ways that that impacted me, and I'm sure the industry in general, was that a lot of people who would come in and see these huge crowds of people fighting around and quarters up on the machine, they would kind of say, okay, I'm going to play something else. And there were a huge number of clones at the time. World Heroes was my jam. Mm, that, yeah. Nice. I was so good at that game. Of World course, Heroes I was mostly, or World Heroes Jet? World Heroes. Okay. World Heroes 2 also. But in World yeah. Heroes, I could beat anybody with any character anytime. Of course, I didn't have anybody to beat because nobody played World Heroes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but there were a lot of games that thrived on that. I loved all of the clones of all of this stuff, and I loved World Heroes, but yeah, I think I probably played against another human being once, and I think it was my brother. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, was, it didn't really count. Before we go off too far off the deep end, I mean, the first thing I want to talk about is sort of the predecessors. I think we've already talked about that Urban Champion, as you mentioned, is considered mm-hmm. sort of one of the rare predecessors. Yi'ar Kung Fu, Karate Champ. Do any of these games move the needle for either of you people, or have they just been so overshadowed by Street Fighter that they just have no purchase? Well, Karate Champ was pretty seminal in that it had the dual joystick setup. Oh, right. The arcade yeah. machines had it opened up a huge number of moves and intricacies for the two players to compete that I don't think you really saw in a lot of arcades since before then, up to that point. There was a 64 martial arts game that I played a lot. I think it was a... Karatika? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and I played that a lot, and that Mm -hmm. was fun. But I still played a lot of... Mainly because it was the cheapest game at the Nintendo resale store. (laughs) But I I ended up really liking it and playing it a lot, and that was Kung Fu for the 8-bit NES. Oh, right. Uh, Which, I guess, could be considered a predecessor to that kind of game, because you're... It certainly is in the same vein, right? It certainly yeah. is taking martial arts movie tropes and being on a left, right, you know, facing one direction axis and doing all of your moves and whatnot right. and having a boss at the end of the level. Like, these are certainly things that Street Fighter sort of swept up into it. It also had cool sound effects and was utterly mindless, which yes. is why I ended up liking it. <laughs> right. And then, of course, from there, 
Street Fighter 1. I mean, there is a Street Fighter 2, but people just talk interchangeably about, they just say Street Fighter when they mean Street Fighter 2, because it's so overshadowed. Didn't Street Fighter have an early gimmick game with, like, punch sensors? It did, yes. yeah. So, so that, that was kind of a, a rabbit hole that I went down. Sorry, I, I no, don't go ahead, interrupt. Nathan, please. Um, but there's a lot of, especially these early games had, there was no template for fighting games. You know, the six-button scheme didn't really come around until Street Fighter, the original Street Fighter, and that came out of the fact that there were, you know, touch-sensitive buttons. There were large, round pads, uh, rubber pads, and depending on how hard you hit them, it would be a light, medium, or hard punch or kick. Right. And, of course, machines would take abuse, and uh, they found that it was much cheaper, more cost-effective to just have six buttons. Um, not not just the machines that took abuse, but this is that's where I came in my intro. There were complaints that Capcom had about kids that were had gotten wrist fractures from hitting the buttons too hard. Yeah. And so they, they recalled those machines and then they came up with the six button controller to basically replace those with normal push buttons. But to me, Street Fighter 1 is like, I kind of look at the, like the original Battlestar Galactica and Ronald D. Moore's Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> like the, the, the sort of the template appeared in the original and the ideas were in the original, but it took a whole different team of programmers, of artists to rethink the idea and to make something that bears some resemblance, but in reality, it's a whole new dimension above what the original was. Yeah. Well, the second one also added this menagerie of weird characters. The first oh, there were, one, there were weird characters in the first one. There wasn't a green mutant from Brazil. There wasn't a stretchy Indian guy, but that's what I'm getting <laughs> at is that they weren't this kind of cartoony, interesting, weird sort of bizarre nature of it because it really kind of felt like a circus where the first game it felt like everyone were different sorts of martial arts. A lot of the characters in the first one were ripoffs of common anime tropes or specific characters um, from anime series. So yeah. Hmm. So, But getting back to Karate Champ because I actually have some I wouldn't know if I'd call them fond memories of Karate Champ but Karate Champ has been sort of this common denominator at just about every arcade I've ever gone to. Hmm. And every so often, I will make an attempt to play it. And I think the thing that draws me to it, even though I never enjoy playing it, is the dual joystick that you mentioned. This is something you saw later on in games like Smash TV or Robotron 2084, Mm -hmm. which are games that also use dual joysticks, but also have very simple, easy controls that you can get into. Karate Champ does not have easy controls, and it's always been one of the most frustrating games that I've ever played, because essentially, learning how to play Karate Champ is a lot like learning how to use that signal flag language that old (laughs) pre-radio ships use to communicate with each other, where it's like, okay, up left on the right joystick and down right diagonal does this kick. Oh, crap, I'm facing the wrong direction. Right. And you don't really know what you're doing, and there's this giant wall of text on the side of the cabinet with like a Morse code level breakdown of every single combination that nobody's going to stop to read. So essentially what you have are 50 things that you can do, none of which you can do on purpose. (laughs) And you're stuck in this sort of scenario where thankfully, if you're playing another human rather than computer, because the computer already knows how to do everything and can act with some amount of agency. (laughs) But when you're playing another human, at least you know they're handicapped in the same exact way that you are. (laughs) And it feels a bit like that scene in Beneath the Planet of the Apes where the mind-controlled mutant is making Heston and James Franciscus fight each other (laughs) by forcing them using mental powers, where he's not controlling their bodies, (laughs) but they're actually fighting against him. And (laughs) there's a bit of resistance to this character doing what you want on the screen. And you're like, no, kick him. No, stop it. No, kick him. Kick him. And he's not doing what you want. But you know at least that 
the, the other guy that you're playing at, he's got a 99% chance that he's in the same exact place right. you are. Mm-hmm. So you're essentially, you're operating this game cabinet like you're stripping the gears of a semi-truck <laughs> and you're just like, <laughs> and you're just messing with these double joysticks and you know the other person is too. And then you just get lucky. We are orbiting. We are orbiting what I hate the most about fighting games right now. Learning curve? Uh, Not the learning curve. I'm okay with. I I play Kerbal Space Program. Learning curves are fine for me, but the uh, just the way the controls work and the language of fighting game controls, sort of the UI language that just sort of takes me out of it rather than puts me in. Well, I'll posit that the reason why Street Fighter Two was so successful in that it allowed even someone who is a quote button masher unquote to feel like they ha- they can have some kind of a success in terms of gameplay right whereas with karate champ there's no such thing as mashing there's no buttons to mash and you can if you just try to randomly do things you're probably not going to have anything come out that's going to be worth anything street fighter one was you couldn't really button mash all that well that the button timings were so unresponsive and to be able to do the special moves which I don't really know if I knew anyone who really knew how to do the special They were moves. really laggy controls. Yeah, of incredibly yeah. laggy. But with Street Fighter, at least there was a level of responsivity and a level of looseness with the execution of stuff that even a button masher could, you know, could walk up. And maybe if you were E-Honda, you could hit the strong button a few times and have us do a thousand hand slap or something. Like you could get, you could actually get something done. Now to master it, like it's a little bit more difficult. You have to you have to understand about timing and actually learn a sequence of stuff, right? And figure out this character is going to jump higher. This and is faster. the attitude that annoys me. What, which is <laughs> well, it's elaborate. got it's got timing, and you have to hit all the buttons at the right time. And it is like, dude, I play video games. <laughs> I know how this shit works. Right, right, right. <laughs> but it's but interestingly enough, it's one where they they made it looser as opposed to tighter. Do you they know did, what I'm saying? They did later on, yeah. Yeah. But even like even today, I still. I, maybe it's just a different reason why people play video games, but I always found the sort of, like I said, the sort of the UI language, the forward, forward, circle around, that sort of thing, in order to make things happen on the screen that look nothing like what you're actually doing on the screen. You're not being immersive. You're not controlling the the player on the screen directly. You are basically sending a series of codes to the character on the screen saying, do this, now do this, now do this other thing. Insert killer instinct. Yeah, insert killer instinct here, yeah. (laughs) And when you have these sort of things, it really took me out of it, and it felt less like I was playing the game and more like I was watching the game happen and just sort of doing a choose-your-own-adventure type thing. I would say that the that the thing that may turn some people off about it is the fact that it requires... You know, to get past a certain level, to get past a mashing level, it requires so much precision and so much control over what you're doing, how you're doing it, and what the anticipated consequence of that is, is that some people just can never get the hang of it. It was too much of that one type of thing that some people are not good at being video game players. And I will say it was a level of control. I mean, the fighting games were really the games where, where the people who were seriously into playing these games and the people who just played them for entertainment. I think it really separated those into two groups. And, and I think that right. like oh, maybe yeah. fighting games had that dividing effect. Of course. And I'm definitely somebody who's in the latter category. I like getting good at things. I like knowing all the little tricks in, in you know, I like knowing the patterns in Pac-Man. Used to know them, don't now. Right. I can remember the patterns in Super Pac-Man because there's like five things happening on the screen. It's really easy to track. But Pac-Man now is sort of beyond me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that was something over and above learning the game that was that was something is like i was there for entertainment and if i felt like doing like getting really weenie about it i could Mm -hmm. where it felt like 
when we went to fighting games if I was going to get the most out of my quarter because I'm showing up like three bucks. You know, that's all I've got. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these fighting games around the time when they started getting popular was when games stopped costing a quarter. Yeah, that's true. That was actually something that was unique about Champion Edition. I don't know if you came up with if you, you Nathan, mm-hmm. he seems to have done a lot of research for this. <laughs> Champion Edition, they specifically made for the option to have the default coin setting be 50 cents per credit yeah. instead of 25 cents because mm. they thought, oh my God, think about how much more money we would make if we had 50 cents per play. Doubling your profit. Yeah. And, and anyway, it probably yeah. kept uh, arcades afloat for a yeah. decade longer of, than they might. Of have. course it did. So, but it's that competitiveness that stopped me from playing a lot of these games because, like Sam mentioned, there is this huge disparity against people who are really good mm-hmm. and people like me who are really very casual about it. That I'm not going to put the same skill into this that you know if i want to put that same skill into something i could just learn real karate and (laughs) and back in you know it stopped being like let's get together and play some video games like it was a thing it was like i said it would became what character are you playing in the fighting game and you know can you beat me or not and when you got to my point i don't really play those games it was an impingement on my masculinity yeah well which is something i cared about when i was 14 so let's yeah go ahead i I do want to dissent a little bit here and just say that i believe that street fighter 2 actually did a fantastic job of creating a smooth curve for most people who are learning the game Hmm. we talk a lot about the the game being impossible to play because there's a group of master players standing around trying to beat each other and if you walk in there not knowing how to play then you're in trouble but for a very long time when it first came out there you had this disparity of people who knew all the moves for the character you know maybe they chose to learn guile and so they knew how to do all his special moves and then you would have somebody who comes in and doesn't know anything except that if i mash the punch button e honda will do the hundred hand slap and those people could actually hold their own for quite a while, a lot longer, I think, than in games now, where everybody knows the hitboxes and the frame rates down, you know, everything down to microseconds. And I think that's okay because fighting games have developed, and this goes back to something I was saying, it's like the UI language. I don't know what UI people actually call it, but hmm. the way you play Pac-Man, where up is up, down is down, left is left, right is right. So I want to take a spur to that conversation, and I want to say, yeah, it's very interesting that what this ended up doing was creating this new social space that you maybe would have existed on a street corner before street fighter right interesting that it's street fighter and so it has an aspect of being gang members or street kids i think that maybe that was part of like the bad boy appeal to a lot of people oh it's the street fighter yeah yeah it did end up creating a pecking order for people who were in this exclusive group who were who were badasses and that in turn created an out group of people who either had no interest or were just so bad at it that they didn't they didn't want to get humiliated but however, since it's not like football or ba- basketball or something, there's an egalitarian aspect to the way that it ended up working because it didn't matter what race you were. And it also didn't matter if you came in in a wheelchair. One of the best guys that I had ever seen play Street Fighter it was a guy who had only one arm. <laughs> so, like, it was strangely, it was a place where it didn't really matter what sort of caste, what class, what creed you were from. I would challenge that Street Fighter created that over and above just the whole just video gaming video in general. game video games but sure. it might have brought I don't want to completely say oh Street Fighter had nothing to do with it because Street Fighter did you know I may hate them but Street Fighter did a hell of a lot for video games did a hell of a lot for arcades I can't take that away so I I would say it had a part to play sure but I don't think that it was the whole the part stood for the whole sure I will also say that I'm not I'm again one of those people like Sam who's in that latter category I am not a hardcore Street Fighter fighting game guy I get my ass kicked just about every time I play against a computer in an arcade. And Casey, 
you've played against me, and I know you're somebody who actually held the Twin Galaxy Street Fighter II record. <laughs> so let's clarify this. Let's clarify this. If you're a next level Street Fighter badass, you're someone who plays in a tournament and beats other other human beings. The fact that a score existed in Street Fighter II was a bit of an affectation of an earlier age. Yeah. And yes, I did hold the high point record for Street Fighter II The World Warrior on Twin Galaxies for a short period of time. However, that gives me some notoriety, but not much notoriety when it comes to Street Fighter however, players. However, you've actually played against me a number of times, and I think I've beaten you mostly on accident twice. Not twice out of three. I mean twice... Period. Rounds, just rounds. Yeah, two rounds. <laughs> yeah. And those two rounds I beat you were not in the same series of three. And, uh-uh. a- and again, to its credit, when it was divulged to me that you had this Twin Galaxies record, it really caused me to rethink about these video games because I didn't think a high score thing was something that was desirable or interesting or even something that existed in these games. And so here you hold the record for the high score I did at the time. And then at the time I knew that these tournaments were going on. And then you told me why you weren't necessarily, you may have this record, but you were a bad fit for the tournaments because of the style of play, sort of the strategies involved. It added a new dimension to these fighting games that I had not seen before. Mm. Well, admittedly, it's a dimension. I just don't know if it's a notable dimension. But beyond that point, I'd like to go to bring it out of the arcade for a little bit and sort of talk a little bit higher about what Street Fighter did. First and foremost... Capcom was the publisher and developer, and and fighting games really did begin with Capcom. They didn't end with them, of course. But in retrospect to Capcom's contribution to video games in general, I think they made some amazingly inventive and memorable games before Street Fighter II. And I'm here talking about things like 1942, Mm. Ghosts and Goblins, Bionic Commando, Mega Man is a big one. And they really got in early on porting to Nintendo, which was obviously a big deal for their long-term success. And I'm just wanting to ask this panel of illustrious experts what made capcom so special and and why do you think that this whole genre broke open with capcom and not say sega or konami or nintendo or one of the other american developers that were bubbling up at the time i think they just made good games and one of the things that people talk about all the time when it comes to video games is how bad licensed games are for characters in tv shows and movies Hmm. capcom broke that by doing really good video games for things like DuckTales, Chippendales, Rescue Rangers, they really focused on quality in a way that most people didn't. It wasn't just a cash grab with them. Chippendales Rescue Rangers, in my mind, is just as good, if not better, than Super Mario Brothers 2 as far as video platformers hmm. where you throw things at bad guys. You have people doing live covers of the DuckTales video game music. <laughs> I mean, they put such quality, they, they did such a good job with that game. I played the hell out of it at a time. I didn't really care for DuckTales, but I, I loved the game and I played I played the hell out of it. I mean, like the Mega Man series is a big one of that. That was something I was playing, you know, really or like not long after I got my Nintendo, well before my my brother was born. And those games have had such power and such lastingness. My brother, who's 10 years younger than I am, is a huge Mega Man fanboy. Mm -hmm. And he knows way more about these games than I do that I was playing before he was born. I mean, right. there's, I, I think there's something to be said for the quality and sort of the investment in these you know, properties in, in trying to actually make them not just do a cheap cash grab, but actually trying to make it great. Witness the efficacy about bringing Street Fighter II to the Super Nintendo. Right, yes. For, from a casual glance, I couldn't tell the difference at the time between whether or not it was on the Super Nintendo or if it was on the CPS, you know, it was in the right. arcade box. right. There was no other video game other than perhaps Strider 
that I could think of <laughs> hmm. that had that look. Another Capcom game. Yeah, the fact that many of the developers and creators at Capcom back in the 80s are still making games today and they're still at the forefront, they're talking about their opinions are respected, shows that they really do care about the gameplay and the creations that they make, which I think is something you didn't see a lot of back in the day. You saw a lot of companies coming in with dollar signs in their eyes trying to make the next big thing, and Capcom really didn't have that impetus behind the games that they made. Hmm. You know, it occurs to me that when we were talking that the design philosophy behind what some of the games that we, you know, Street Fighter is definitely one of them, but these games that we're talking about were these franchises we remember. The design philosophy for someone who's making an arcade game is markedly different than for someone who's programming a game for a home console or for a PC, and it's largely by this sort of 90-second, two-minute thing. So right. if, if you read the manual, if you actually read the arcade owner's manual for Street Fighter II World Warrior, it says something like, helpful hint to you as the new arcade owner, ratchet your difficulty level based on how you see the, the length of time you see your customers playing. It should be around 90 seconds. This makes total sense when there are just some... You know, you get some mid-80s arcade games, and they're just bafflingly hard from the very beginning. This was by design. It was by design that you created a game that would swallow up quarters as fast as possible, but give the players just enough sort of an addictive taste to keep going back to the feeder bar for more. And this is interesting. Capcom took this, this sort of thing of saying, yeah, we do want to have a game that will still have the same philosophy, 90 seconds on a quarter, still be difficult in that way. However... There is a a senescence, if you will, about the way that a game would play if it's primarily between multiple people. That one person could, if they were good enough, continue playing on the same quarter over and over again whilst still have their opponents chugging in quarter after quarter after quarter in rapid succession, thereby, you know, successfully saving that business model. And that's a that's a model that transcends quarters at that point. Because right. I mean right. once once you have two people involved I'm never a very good bad guy, am I? Um, <laughs> uh, once you have two people involved, it doesn't matter. It stops being about the quarters and it becomes a Rocky movie. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. If it's a Rocky movie, then I'm playing Glass Joe. <laughs> I get my ass kicked You're out in these in the, games. You're out in the first round. And I can say something about the way these fighting games often work, which is that you basically have to relearn the entire game every time you try a new character. Hmm. And that's pretty much standard with just about every one-on-one fighting game past a certain point. I know that in Karate Champ, the only difference between the two characters is one guy is wearing a white gi and the other guy's wearing a red gi. When you get to Street Fighter Two, the characters looked radically different. They had right. completely different fighting styles. If you played that game and you wanted to get good at it, you would play just one character. It certainly made it a lot more visually interesting. That did. And because people acted different and you'd have to learn how to counter all these different moves and styles, people with different reaches, some of them had projectile attacks, some of them could do massive damage at close distance mm-hmm. and it was really interesting because you didn't know who was good at what of course there were some characters like ryu and ken and guile that were really popular you didn't see a lot of people playing e honda for instance yeah whenever i was playing i would always be i was like please don't choose blanca please don't choose blanca because <laughs> i could not beat that guy no matter who was playing it could be a brand new player they can beat well, me with blanca let me ask the people who play these games if you've already made the investment into the fighting game genre I mean, that's got to be great for playability, that it's the same game, but if you just pick a different character, suddenly it's a new story. Suddenly everything is different. Plus, you could also handicap somebody who's really good at the game by having them play a character they don't like right. and is, giving is that, somebody a better is chance. Is that actually how it works out? Or 
I mean, I think that speaks to the depth of what Street Fighter ended up doing. You weren't just, you're right, you weren't just the guy and you learned the guy. And that's what you play on forever. There was multiple people to learn. However, there are strategies that cross over from different characters. Like projectile characters obviously have their own strategy that's common among them. Characters that don't have projectiles or what, you know what I'm talking about. Like, Mm -hmm. to become good, you don't learn just your character really well. You learn all characters because you have to potentially fight against all characters. Right. So, I mean, that's just part and parcel of playing it past a certain point, you know. So that's a point that I never got to. Right. I mean, this is a thing that I can say about the fluidity of how Street Fighter worked against its contemporaries, especially like Mortal Kombat. Hmm. Because Mortal Kombat was weird because you didn't have to just memorize how you were to actually interact in the fight. You had to come up with a different combination after you already beat them up (laughs) to either kill them in a brutal fashion, uh, turn them into a baby, and countless other things that I'm not even sure were rumors or lies or things that people told because there's all these hidden things in Mortal Kombat that you didn't really understand. But the moves in Mortal Kombat were never as fluid as Street Fighter. No. I know how to do a fireball with Ryu or Ken because it's a fluid motion of down, diagonal, forward, forward, punch. And it's easy to do. And almost anyone, even people who are bad at the game, know how to do a couple moves. I have never been able to do a dragon punch on purpose. <laughs> I've done one on accident. But if you want to get an idea of the glass ceiling that I strike every time I play that game... It's that I don't know how to do it. And if Mm. you want to know how universal Street Fighter was, how powerful this game was, and how influential it was to move into other things, look at the game Final Fantasy III, also known as Final Fantasy VI in Japan. Mm -hmm. There was a character in the game named Sabin. Sabin looked exactly like Guile from Street Fighter (laughs) II. This was a guy with a blue tank top, a blonde flat top buzz cut, He had martial arts special moves, and one of those special moves was a fireball. And to do it in a turn-based medieval steampunky (laughs) RPG, you had to jump into the turn-based fight, and when it was Sabin's turn, down, diagonal, (laughs) forward, and then kind of a punch move. A lot of these moves are, are, I mean, you find them embroidered into clothing, like you do with the Konami code. Yes. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, to borrow a term that uh, Rosalind introduced, it's a shibboleth. Mm -hmm. Oh, it definitely is. You know, it's funny that you brought up Mortal Kombat because Mortal Kombat is the redheaded stepchild of Street Fighter 2. It'll always be second fiddle, but it has its own life. It's still around, obviously. They're making Mortal Kombat X is coming out. But it's just not only being Street Fighter 2's most notable competitor, it's so interesting that it did a few things that are incredibly notorious. Well, one, the kids that crowded around that game were meaner. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. de- they delighted wow. in murder. They were, the, they were like the weird kids <laughs> with the shit, dusters you're... who had like a shuriken in their pocket <laughs> who bragged about going to juvies. <laughs> Holy shit, you're right. Oh my god. <laughs> if you've ever watched the show Venture Brothers, they were the Dermots. <laughs> <laughs> they were just a weird group of scary kids who might have all been perpetual liars. Well, wasn't it Mortal Kombat that introduced the did they take out the blood question? Right. In- oh, well, Mortal, Mortal Kombat has a huge place in history for that. Well, they were the ones who really broke Nintendo's censorship policy, which they'd had for, since they started making Yeah, Mortal and, and Mortal Kombat was one of the main reasons why the Congress started getting involved, why there were hearings about whether or not these games should be censored or, or there should be a board, an advisory board. It's one of the catalysts, along with Night Trap and Doom, for the ratings board, the ESRB. Right. That system exists, and it's, it's a self-governed body. It's not a government-controlled body because of the hearings and the way that the companies reacted to Mortal Kombat when it was released. And the reason why I will never forgive Tipper Gore 
Tipper. <laughs> one, one of a few reasons <laughs> if we're yes. being. I mean. We're talking about the convention kiss where it looked like he, Al Gore was trying to dislodge <laughs> his jaw and eat her whole. <laughs> Don't do that on TV, anyone. But it's funny because I think that Mortal Kombat was one of those games that changed the way most people saw video games. Yep. That you saw games like Burger Time and Super Mario Brothers. You keep coming back to Burger Time, Mike. Burger Time is awesome. You have burgers on the brain. Are you hungry, Mike? You get to throw pepper at people. (laughs) That's way nastier. Actually, some of the older games are way more violent if you really think about them. They don't have the gore, but they're way worse than Mortal Kombat. Have you played Dig Dug lately? Do you know how you kill bad guys? You basically do the same thing Scorpion does in Mortal Kombat where you throw a cable that spikes into somebody but at least you know Scorpion just pulls you in the guy in Dig Dug actually inflates you until you explode with a bicycle pump I'm pretty sure there's a Mortal Kombat 3 finishing move that is basically that (laughs) I I kind of wonder if somebody's hacked in that get over here (laughs) into Dig Dug I would totally play the hell out of that boom well I mean you know I doubt anyone listening wouldn't know what we're talking about but obviously Mortal Kombat's legacy is was the finishing moves was to you know you have a bloody game you've got lots of wicked punches and blood splattering from all the hits but like spaghetti sauce yeah <laughs> but at the end, you get the chance. You know, the, your enemy is dazed after you've defeated them. You get the chance to do finish him uh, to do it. Yes, yeah. and you get to do something. At the time, it wasn't just someone's illustrated characters and some uh, head being head lop- lopped off. These were digitized actors. Someone had taken digital pictures of each frame. And then, of course, when they took their heads off, they didn't take actual heads off. They they animated it. The Mortal Kombat finish thing is something that's just that's escaped video games and has just entered society as a thing that you do. I mean, finish him became a phrase in my debate club. Like, when you were doing so well, and I did LNP, uh, Legal and Parliamentary Debate, and so whenever you were just owning a bill and closing comments came up and you were, you know, coaching the guy, you just whisper, finish him. And... (laughs) And that, and it had nothing to do with video games. Right. And then he ripped his spine out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just so interesting because Street Fighter Two was sort of Japan throwing the rest of the world lots of anime and movie tropes back to the rest of the world. And Mortal Kombat was America throwing mm-hmm. Street Fighter Two back to everybody else. And when it did it, it was hyper-realistic, hyper-violent, and kind of even in weird. Realistic. Yeah, yeah realistic. <laughs> and in, and in kind of an even more dark and cynical parody of Hong Kong martial arts movies. Was it an intentional parody? Because I mean, Oh, of course it was. They're it so... was weird. It was kind of hard to tell how seriously the fans took it. Well, they seemed it, to take it, it pretty seriously. No, and it took itself really seriously. And that was the thing that was, you got like a guy with like a huge monster guy with four arms at the end. And it always carried with it like a tone of being... Like it was a serious rated R action movie, you know? I kind of liked Goro, the four-armed guy, because there was something very Ray Harryhausen about him. He was like this (laughs) character from Jason and the Argonauts, and I'm suddenly fighting with this... That was the thing with those graphics for that game, is that they did get actors to do this ridiculous stuff, like including the Liu Kang bicycle kick. I don't even know how they probably had him on a cart <laughs> doing that. But it the was, same stuff they did for Baron Harkonnen in the, uh, in the movies. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And this is the one thing where I really believe Street Fighter has aged much better than Mortal Kombat, because even the modern Mortal Kombat games do regular graphics yeah. rather than getting right. a bunch of actors to act out all of the moves is those games look pretty 
pretty dated when you look at them now. And there's other games that tried to jump on the bandwagon of getting actors to act it out, like Pit Fighter. Did you guys ever play yeah. that? Oh, oh yeah. man, yes. uh-huh. Pit Fighter. That game yes. is the worst. I loved it. I mean, at the time, like a lot of early CGI in movies, you were like blown away, but then you see it 10 years later and it's like, wow, that's bad. Pit Fighter was made by the mini games, though. Yes, that's um, true. Yeah, those are some great mini games. The nice thing about Mortal Kombat, though, is that it gives us a, a really good window into what American video game development like was versus Japanese video game development. Street Fighter had this very focused, stylized approach where every character had a unique style, not only look-wise, but also control-wise. Mortal Kombat was kind of a blunt hammer hitting a watermelon over and over <laughs> because all the characters had the same like uppercut. They all yeah. had the same like jump kick. There was very little variation with them except in the way that they looked and the special moves that they had and, of course, the the fatalities. And the, the special moves were not fluid either. They were really hard to do. It's no. like up, left, right, down, and it was... And if you did it wrong, your character did this weird, like, herky-jerky kind of dance to it because it, it didn't do anything, but you were pushing down and back and forward and back, back. Was that supposed to be Jean-Claude Vadim, or was he actually supposed to be in that game? Is that how that went? I think uh, I, I think I heard that right. That uh, Johnny Cage was originally going to be Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, yeah. Was that right? Or the, I think that, I think so. Yeah, and then he backed out, and so they just swapped out. Got <laughs> some other guy. A guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's a his guy. name in the game, right? A, a guy. A guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how this stuff comes full circle, though. Too is that they later made a video game adaptation of the Street Fighter movie. Oh. And used Mortal Kombat style. You got my low. You 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 sunk my low point. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll come back to that. Let's let's dredge that up again later. (laughs) But it's funny how this stuff tends to feed itself. There's all these other games out there, and one that I know you mentioned in your intro that I think deserves a bit more mention is Clay Fighter. (laughs) <laughs> Not just for what it was, yes. but for what it was trying to be. And right. what it was trying to be excited me as a 12- and 13-year-old, which was a claymation video game. The idea that you're essentially playing one of those weird Rankin-Bass Christmas specials. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the characters in the game is like an Elvis impersonator. There's right. one guy who's like the blob, who's like a shapeshifter. There's like, a snowman. There's a snowman character. Snowman. Bad yeah. Mr. Frosty. Does he sing Frosty. Christmas carols at you? Is it really that Rankin-Bass? It's pretty weird. It's it's much more self-aware where it wears the humor aspect of itself on its sleeve. The controls were very jerky. They right. had that sort of slow, lurchy quality that Mortal Kombat did, which means... I really wasn't into Mortal Kombat because it felt like your character was moving on a high-gravity planet and it didn't Mm -hmm. react real well, but Street Fighter was just so fluid. It's kind of weird. I have a certain affection for a lot of the Street Fighter Mortal Kombat Mm ripoffs that I didn't enjoy playing but enjoyed that they even exist in the first place, and one of them being Tekken. Tekken is one that has a lot of fans out there. But the thing that I liked about Tekken was not playing Tekken, was seeing Tekken be played. Right. It kind of reminds me a little bit when you're a kid and you see a merry-go-round at the fair or sometimes even inside of a mall. Mm -hmm. And most of the time with a merry-go-round, it's just a series of horses on poles. But occasionally, (laughs) you would get a merry-go-round that would have like a deer or it would have a fish you could ride. And when I was a kid, I would always run to the giant fish to ride that or the deer or the weird animal Tekken 
was this for fighting games. <laughs> it was the merry-go-round with the weird animals on it. Because why do I want to play a karate guy when I can play a fucking bear standing <laughs> on its back legs fighting a guy? Or, that yeah, is a guy way with more. a tiger head. Like, a tiger head um, man. Or a guy that was made out of apparently firewood. <laughs> it's like a log man. Or, and it makes no fucking sense at all. But it was trying something different. And I was just so amused by watching people play. I didn't like the gameplay itself. But for existing and at least trying weird, off-the-wall things Mm -hmm. was something I'd have a weird amount of nostalgia and affection for, for something I barely played. Tekken has one of the other distinctions, which is that it was really kind of when the tide was turning and the superior arcade graphics were no longer really a thing, and you were starting to be able to get the arcade experience at home, and then just a few years later you started getting superior experiences at home. Um, Tekken was actually, the arcade Tekken game was made on modified PlayStation hardware. Mm-hmm. So when it came out for the PlayStation, you were getting really an arcade experience. No kidding. There had always been like that disparity between hardcore fighting games and casual fighting game players. You had the arcade game and you had the console game. Yeah. And the console game never looked as good. It never had as good a sound. You could get actor voices showing up in the arcade game. You could get these graphics because the entire machine, rather than running software for a specific game, the way that it has to run software from all these different things. Mm -hmm. It was a machine built just to play one game, and it could push it that much harder. There came a point where the console games were just as good, if not superior, Mm -hmm. to stuff you're getting. Plus, you get privacy, and you don't have to deal with the weirdos and the dusters with the shuriken. And it gives you time to get good. Yeah, and that's so interesting that you talk about this because the port, the first time Street Fighter 2 was ported to a home console, it was the Super Nintendo, and it was a time Mm -hmm. when outside of Super Mario World, which was the game that shipped in North America as the bundled, what do they call it? They call it pack-in? The pack-in game. The pack-in game. NES got the exclusive port, and that was a huge win in sort of Nintendo's fight against Genesis, who'd already had several years of a North America catalog that had been rolled out and was successful. Mm -hmm. It sold 6.3% million copies now that's the fourth highest selling snes game of all time but excepting for the fact that the top three were super mario world donkey kong country and super mario kart all pack-in games yeah it's basically the one non-pack-in game that sold the most it's actually capcom's best-selling game software on a single platform through to the present day even today that's how successful it was so i'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on what sf2s meant for the console war and for consoles in general well it was an amazing port of the game they cut out some frames and obviously some things weren't there but overall i mean it really had that arcade feel it did not translate directly you couldn't come in and play with the exact same timing and everything but it did give you an opportunity to learn every character's move and to learn how to counter certain characters and of course you could get good by playing your brother or your friend or whomever at home i think it was a huge win for nintendo you know, that combined with the fact that not only did the game come out later, but do you guys remember the Genesis version of Street Fighter? Yeah, it was actually pretty impressive for what it was. It, it was impressive for what it was, but just the fact that you had to hit the start button to switch your three buttons <laughs> yeah. from punch to kick. Or you had to buy a new control. Which <laughs> or is, buy yeah. a brand new controller. Right. Uh, that was a bit of a deal breaker for me. Yeah, I uh, It made me sad. Because I was a Genesis owner. Yeah. And uh, after the Street Fighter came out, yeah. It... Well, you backed the wrong horse, didn't uh, you, Sam? Well, I, I believe I opened this up by saying, you know, the fighting games is what I would get around to get to Altered Beast. So, uh, <laughs> and Altered Beast being the packing game when I got my Genesis. Mm-hmm. I right. felt I did it. And then they had, you know, a few other things. I didn't buy Street Fighter because I wasn't a fighting game guy. Sure, sure. But it definitely did horrible things to, <laughs> to the Genesis to yes. the point where there were some games that were coming out for Genesis or that just didn't 
because they went for the Super Nintendo. Right. There's an interesting parallel right now, too, with Sony announcing that Street Fighter V is exclusive to the PlayStation 4. Right. I mean, that's a similar megaton. There's just no media around that announcement back in 1992 or 93 or whenever it was. Yeah. But uh, I think it's a similar a similar blow that you could deal. I don't know that Street Fighter now has the same weight that it did back then, but right. certainly it captured the minds of hardcore gamers. Right. And that's another hit the Xbox One really doesn't need right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've been circling around this, and in our discussions before having this panel, I thought about the definition of what a fighting game sort of actually was. And I decided that because of one game in particular, a game made by Capcom, that the distinction between versus fighting games, which are the your Mortal Kombat's and your Street Fighters of the world, and games that you would call beat-em-ups, or sometimes they're called belt scrollers, and I'm talking about a Double Dragon or a Renegade or a Golden Axe, that because of this one game, I think that the DNA between versus fighters and beat-em-ups are actually so close that they might need to be mentioned in the same discussion. And I'm talking about Final Fight. Sure. So Final Fight was originally going to be Street Fighter 89. It was going to be the sequel to the original Street Fighter. And they sort of headed it off because I think someone else within Capcom said, no, 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 we, we should do another fighting game. We should and leave this to do something else. So Final Fight, as it was, is one of these beat-em-ups. You're a guy who's a badass and you're, you know, you're taking out the trash on the streets with a gang of colorful characters and... Pal- really colorful characters. It looks like something out of the Road Warrior. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love something about that 80s style street tough. But here's the reason why I connect the DNA is it's basically made by the same company with the same aesthetic. Characters from Final Fight will rejoin the Street Fighter franchise as playable characters and cameos throughout the lifetime of both series. And I think that really the set piece for those games is basically exactly the same. You're on a street. You're a guy who does moves. You beat the shit out of other people, and sometimes you play with more than one person. I, I can't agree oh, well, on that point. Go ahead. I, I mean, finish him with uh, <laughs> with uh, Double Dragon. Guys show up, punch your girlfriend. Okay, clear understanding of who the bad guys and the good guys are. <laughs> well, technically, that was a one on one fight. It's yeah, that was a very short one on one fight. But beyond that, it's just going to get your girlfriend back, or it's always something like that. Are you a bad enough dude to save the president's daughter, or something like that? With fighting games, there's always... I don't understand why fighting games have stories, but I'm glad they do because they're always crazy. (laughs) There's this guy who has this fighting tournament made up of corpses to figure out who corpses the hardest or something like that. I don't get these stories, but being the kind of guy that I am, they're so nutty that I love them. I I actually like watching cutscenes for that reason. I mean, I think whatever thing you contrive to give some type of narrative to an arcade game is going to be pretty nutty as it begins with. But I think for the purposes of this discussion, I think I wanted to talk about them because I think for people like you, for example, I think if you enjoyed the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game or The Simpsons as a sort of an arcade experience, I think you are playing it from the same perspective. I think you as someone who might have enjoyed more a game that would be like Golden Axe or like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are enjoying a fighting game, but just a fighting game of a different ilk. I suspect this is coming up because we actually hit a local arcade and bar called Dorky's just down the street in the run up towards this panel. And, you know, I had my ass handed to me quite, quite soundly (laughs) at uh, Street Fighter 2. I I did okay for a minute, but I, I wasn't certain if it was my moves or you just being nice. Which is weird. Uh, it's weird that I'm I still pretty rusty, though. Really. I, it's weird that I can't answer that question. Is what's weird. But then we played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is a game that I like. Right. I also like Double Dragon. I liked Final Fight. I mean, those are games that haven't had the replayability 
of you know the games that I really love, which tend to be like platformers and stuff like that. Which just betrays their arcade roots, really. Yeah, but I do like them, and I, right. I did have a lot of fun. I mean, almost with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, it was nostalgic, because I would play it at the KOA in Marengo, Illinois, with my <laughs> brother for summer after summer. Hmm. But are they the same? There seems to be less of an... Uh, I mean, for one thing, fighting games, like you're talking about with Mortal Kombat and Tekken and stuff like that, you're against each other. With these belt fighters... If you're multiplayer, you're all fighting for the same thing. And I come from a family that is horrendously conflict avoidant. <laughs> I, I mean, we, we just, you know, we talk conflict, but we actually try to, because I guess here in the Pacific Northwest, I sound like I'm fighting all the time. But we're actually really conflict avoidant <laughs> to the point where, you know, most of my family members are still friends of my ex-wife on Facebook. It's weird. Um, <laughs> so having to have that person-on-person thing where there's a conflict going on, not between me and some sort of abstracted bit pattern, but that I'm actually fighting somebody else, I never particularly liked. Where with these belt fighters, the fact that we're all working towards the same goal, I liked that. And I think that's like the major difference for me, or one of the major differences, at least in the arcade. I think the difference for me is that I felt like more of a badass when I play one of these conveyor belt beat-em-up games because... I'm hitting the same button repeatedly, but doing a combo that I can't do in one of the Street Fighter II Mortal Kombat style games because I just don't know how to do it. It's the equivalent of the difference between a manual transmission and an automatic transmission, that I have one button that does all the things and doesn't make me have to do all of the in-between grunt work to accomplish that combination. And I can just go boom, 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 boom with the same button. And I've already punched, uppercut, backfisted, and then knee struck a guy in the face. <laughs> or some of my favorite in the Double Dragon game, where you grab them by the hair and you knee them in the face repeatedly <laughs> and then fling them by their hair over you and they fly across the screen, which to my mind is the most satisfying combo <laughs> in any video game. I love those games. I think that the aesthetic is the same. The tone is the same. A lot of the character design is the same, especially in Final Fight. And I think you should describe Final Fight a little bit more because if there was ever a video game that is begged to be made into a movie, it's Final Fight. Because who's the hero of Final Fight? It's Mayor Mike Hagar, who is a former professional wrestler whose daughter is kidnapped by a bunch of guys in outlandish street tough costumes, some of whom wear capes with the radiation (laughs) logo on them and mohawks and like bebop glasses from Ninja Turtles. Right. They've kidnapped your daughter, so he basically throws off his suit, puts on a pair of green slacks with apparently a belt that goes over his shoulder like Tarzan. I I don't know why. And to beat the fuck out of his constituents (laughs) one-on-one. To be fair, Mad Gear never voted for Hagar. (laughs) <laughs> they That's all I'm going to say. They, they definitely did. But he's actually using professional wrestling moves in the course of this video game. Imagine you're running a campaign against Mike Hagar. <laughs> I'm the less roided out psycho one. Vote for me. How does that work? I would, I would watch that cartoon. So I have to say that after he rescues his daughter, how does that campaign go? That yeah, this after is he's guy... murdered you know, a few hundred people, basically, with his bare hands. Either he goes to prison. <laughs> I've done more to fight crime in this city i like how he becomes jesse ventura right away yeah because that's the obvious that is the comparison I, that is the voice i did isn't it i make yeah. <laughs> but yeah he's essentially the politician's professional wrestler so either he goes to prison 
and spends the next 20 years trying not to get murdered in prison by all of these people <laughs> that he miraculously didn't kill. There's like hundreds of them. Or he gets swept into re-election on a landslide. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Mike. <laughs> There's something here that you mentioned that's worth talking about to bring it back to Street Fighter and to a thing that we were talking about in the break, which mm. is, I guess, belt shooters are just Fisher-Price fighting games in a way because you don't have to know all of the combos. The combos are done for you. Depends on yeah. how sophisticated it is. Like, for example, Streets of Rage, which was an incredibly popular franchise on the Genesis, all of their characters had more moves, more frames of animation and more moves than any character in a Street Fighter game. So. The- but by and large, yes, it's an oversimplified. But there was something for Street Fighters that you were saying in the break about sort of the difficulty curve. Yeah, so I was talking about the curve of uh, learning that was introduced in Street Fighter 2, something that's less of a concern and, and might actually have informed the way that Final Fight is created because the I'm sure everybody here will remember the, the cheap guy who would sit in the corner and do the small light kicks that you couldn't block or they would redo the same fireball uppercut motion over and over. And although those moves were considered cheap and everybody hated people who did it, they were actually put in there and left in there by the the developers because it gave the uh, inexperienced players a chance to beat the more experienced players. To know that that was played for and got, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that that was something that they did. Like one of the fighting games that I ended up playing a lot because my friends liked it was the game that turned bump mapping into a porn euphemism. (laughs) DOA. (laughs) Those realistically jiggling breasts. Yeah, where I just learned one move, which was the guy who looked like Dennis Rodman had this move where you basically just grabbed the other guy's head and threw it on the ground. (laughs) And I'm like, that is, that's so cheap. It's, it, it, what? You, that doesn't work. Oh, I, your head. It is on the floor now. Ha, ha, ha. You could almost think of those two things as differing philosophies because whereas uh, you mentioned, Casey, earlier that Final Fight was going to be the sequel, the follow-up to Street Fighter, and instead they went with a more you know mechanically complex fighting game where they kept in this opportunity for people to, for inexperienced people to still play, you could say that they were originally planning on going a different route where the game would be mechanically less complex but you'd still everybody would have the opportunity to perform these combo attacks like the punch punch knee or right. running up to somebody grabbing them and throwing them hmm. and i think that at the very least what it says is that the design philosophies come from a common ancestor so the, to go back to what i was saying about sort of the ui uh, language and the ui philosophy is it has evolved to the point now where the way you control fighting games, you use the same buttons if you're playing a fighting game versus if you're playing a platformer, but the way things work kind of changes and it's almost it's evolved into its own genre and its own type of art with fighting games, much like mm-hmm. a game, a similar type of uh, video game that I really like uh, that I play, Bullet Hell Shoot'em Ups. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, in order to play one of these games, you have to know what a hitbox is. You you know mm-hmm. you actually get power ups in some games that shift that shrink your hitbox so that you can more easily weave through the bullet hell, the waves of bullets that are coming at you. To the mm-hmm. point now where if you took some of these games and and showed them to me when I was eight, I might have lasted four seconds. Right, right. <laughs> I think I wanted to talk at last for our main section about fighting games now and net play because I think the thing about the ignominious death of arcades is that we're really no longer meeting in a public place to play with or against strangers. We're really doing it all from the comfort of our own home. And fighting games still exist in great numbers. And now we even have 24-hour access to competitors if you want to. You can load up Street Fighter 4 and go online and play against people from Australia, you know, when, mm-hmm. when everyone else here is asleep. But 
I don't think it can ever supplant the original sort of scenario in which the games were designed standing next to another human being. And I guess for those people here that, and it sounds like really none of us are really active fighting game players right now, is fighting games in the modern sense with modern consoles and without an arcades, is there anything that could ever bring you guys back into the fold and ever want to care about a fighting game again? Ooh. <laughs> that There's a suggestion there. Because, well, let's, <laughs> let's also just say that, you know, like I said, Street Fighter Five is coming out, Mortal Kombat Ten is coming out. The assumption is that I cared about fighting games to begin with. But it, sure. It's starting to sound a bit like the beginning of a sales pitch. What can I do to tell you? To, <laughs> what can I say to get you into a new fighting game today? <laughs> hmm. yeah, I like wacky stories. I mean, the narratives are great. Give me something that does something that tells a story that fighting games don't normally tell. Hmm. And that might bring me in. Give me, ooh, what, what's that fighting game... That was sort of realistic combat to the point where matches would take like three seconds. Bushido Blade? Bushido Blade. Oh, yeah. I loved the that shit out of that game. game. Yeah. I had no idea what I was playing, and I would like lose 80% of the time, you know, out of, from some, like my liver would fall out or something. <laughs> but I loved it because it was yeah. like, it was so much stress, and then something weird would happen, and then you would laugh at how horribly you lost and the way in which you lost. So maybe more games like that might bring me back into it. I think the closest thing that I, I can think of to a fighting game bringing me back in was is probably Super Smash Brothers. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Super uh, Smash Brothers counts, does it? It is now a competitive concern. It's okay, a can we concern. restart this panel because because uh, uh, <laughs> I'm on the wrong side? <laughs> I played that that the only levels that I was good at in Super Smash Brothers that I really enjoyed playing were the Kill Thirty Things episode. That was sort of the joke around the house. You'll always be able to beat Sam unless you're thirty things, <laughs> and then you will lose. But Smash Brothers, yeah, I guess it is a fighting game, but it just sort of. It does definitely fall into that, you know, local hanging out with friends feel. And Nintendo has done a really good job with the the latest version. Uh, you can play with a Wiimote. You can play with the Wii U pad. You can play with uh, GameCube controllers. You can right. hook up your 3DS and play with oh, your nice. 3DS as a That's controller. Crazy. Yeah. They've made it as easy as possible for people to get together and play the game. There's definitely a manic, frenetic style of gameplay that's just fun. You know, you get people yelling at the screen and yelling at each other. Something that you don't see in traditional you know 2d fighting games and another thing that smash brothers adds to it is it isn't just one-on-one fighting it's throwing up to like five or six people into this fight eight Eight people you get crazy weird alliances that last 45 seconds in smash brothers that's Mm -hmm. like just sort of the emergent strategy that shows up in games like that isn't something that you're going to get i guess that's why i sort of put it in its own category is that there's a social dimension when you're playing Mm -hmm. in my case with four people because you're playing it on the n64 where unspoken you and link because i never played link um, <laughs> would just decide that uh, mario needed to die <laughs> Un- uh, it was just an unspoken decision but mario's winning too much mario needs to die it was also a good way to beat up on pokemon characters <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> there was always at least one person that always played jigglypuff and god i hated that fucking thing <laughs> so what you're saying guys is there's still a chance there's still a chance for this, you. But I think this is touching on exactly what my answer is, which uh. is the social aspect. Mm. I think that the people that you play things on Xbox Live with are frequently some of the worst human beings on the planet. <laughs> I've played games of Uno on Xbox Live and had 13-year-olds call me a faggot. Oh. It's just ugly, nasty, horrible stuff. And I'm like, really, kid? I know that if we were in an arcade, you'd be a lot nicer to me. <laughs> One, because you clearly don't have a driver's license yet. <laughs> and it's just amazing. There's a nastiness, I think, that 
the internet aspect brings to it that as it otherwise wouldn't be there. Because mm-hmm. I think really what I want out of a social aspect is being in the same room with a group of my friends and playing a game together or against each other or sometimes getting really close to winning and then your friend pulls the rug from under you. And these mm-hmm. are sort of things that happen in Smash Brothers. And I think one thing we never really mentioned in our episode on Nintendo is that Nintendo has made a real effort to include party games as a main course of the things that they sell in a way that everyone else just expects you to play online. Mm-hmm. A lot of games for Nintendo are designed for you to play in a living room with a bunch of people that you invite over to your house. Is that Do you think that's played for? I know it's their strategy now, but is that a strategy that they aimed for or is it the strategy that they ended up with? Absolutely. I mean, as early as the Nintendo 64, they had four controller ports yeah. and they've always focused on four-player games. And this is the fun of things like Mario Party. Mm-hmm. And this is the fun about Smash Brothers, is that you, you can play Smash Brothers online, but there's something about Smash Brothers that you don't lose a thing by playing multiplayer, because it doesn't break you up into four tiny screens. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can see everyone on the screen at the same time, and the game has that design built into it. So you don't lose any of the visual fun of playing Super Smash Brothers if you invite your friends over. Yeah, Star Fox 64 would probably have been my favorite I mean, it is among mm-hmm. my favorite games, but I couldn't stand multiplayer. As cool as it was, if you think about it, it's dogfighting yeah. with four of your friends. Right. But I've got like 14 pixels with, in which to dogfight. <laughs> so it, it made things a little bit difficult. Try playing Perfect Dark on Magic Mushrooms, and then you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay, <laughs> we got to end it there. We're going to be back with High Point, Low Point. Uh-huh. And we're back with High Point, Low Point. That's where we go to the top of the mountain and the bottom of the barrel. We're going to start Low Point with you, Sam. What's your low point for fighting games? Well, we presaged it a little bit, but we've said on the show that games that are from properties, like, you know, are just gen- generally tend to be very bad. And I think the nadir of that is. <laughs> Now, okay, Street Fighter was so popular they made it into a movie. What other video games at the time had that distinction? Mortal Kombat. Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers. Burger Time, I think. No. (laughs) Custer's Revenge. Custer's Revenge. Well. Oh, wait a minute. No, they made a whole film industry out of that. (laughs) So the movie came out, and the movie I actually watched. Well, I'm still watching the movie right now, and I forgot how awesome Raul Julia is in that movie and how he totally makes it. So you have a movie that was kind of successful and it was a video game movie so what do you do street fighter the movie the video game. the video game <laughs> it's eating its own tail it's eating its own tail and i could tell e- even from my own tiny perspective on fighting games that this was unplayable the latency between control and response was you do a move and then you like go get a soda and come back and you may have thrown the punch <laughs> And this is something where Street Fighter was so popular, all you had to do was make M. Bison look a little bit more like Raul Julia, reissue the chips, and you would have made just as much money as you would have made mm-hmm. by making Street Fighter the movie, the game. And my biggest anger at the whole thing, the thing that pisses me off so much, is that game didn't take off so that they did a movie of it. So you would have Street Fighter, the game, the movie, the game, the movie. <laughs> That's a lot of colons. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that, and the fact that that didn't happen is a 
black mark on video games. I played that game on the Sega Saturn, and that makes me sad that uh, the Sega Saturn didn't take off. <laughs> Sadly, I think that might have been the most popular game on the <laughs> Sega Saturn. I felt sorry for the one guy in the arcade who decided to become really good at Street Fighter, the movie, the game, and he was always playing it by himself, waiting for a challenger. I know wah, I've wah. used this comparison before, but remember the Paranthropus Robust Hominids? <laughs> the, the hominids that were so specialized that when the environment changed, they just completely died out, and our ancestors survived. That's who the guy who was really good at Street Fighter the movie the video game is he died out because he just couldn't exist in the world to come <laughs> Mike what uh, what's your low point for fighting games okay this is one that comes with a lot of caveats and it's one that not, not has... too many though not too many <laughs> Zangief from Street Fighter 2 oh and... no no hold on oh okay <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I love this character. When He's a hulking Soviet wrestler who's covered in scars and has a mohawk. And when you win the game with him, you do a Russian folk dance with Mikhail Gorbachev. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That alone makes it amazing. Plus, his moves. His moves are great. They're all professional wrestling moves. They all do incredible damage, and you look like you are murdering someone. <laughs> Because every one of them is picking a dude up, suplexing him, pile-driving him, slamming him into the ground, and you can feel it when he does it. Here's the problem. He's impossible to play. Mm. I wish I could be good at playing Zangief because he would be my favorite character. However, for a guy who is as big as Zangief, he towers over every other character in the game. He has no reach. When he throws a punch, his big punch, the one you hit the big button for, it looks like he's trying to strike his own opposing shoulder. He, when he does a kick, he does the same thing. It's like, how is a guy this big have no reach? How is it that somebody like Guile, who is half his size, when he kicks, it goes halfway across the screen, but this giant guy can't do shit? And he has no projectiles, so he's got to have a reach. When he can't shoot a fireball, he's got to get to Ryu or Ken or any one of these other characters. He doesn't even have a move like Dalsim or Ihonda where he launches himself across the screen, which means you are constantly trying to close the gap between you and every other player who knows really well how to catch this big, slow guy. So in the event you do get your hands on someone, you will take out half their life bar, but the odds of you getting to do it twice, unless you were a fucking master is almost nothing. And that's the part that I find just so frustrating <laughs> because the moves feel so good to pull off. But again, that's even if you know how to do the moves. I know how to do a flash kick. I know how to do the sonic boom. I know how to do a lot of these moves, even the simple ones like the 100 hand slap where you're just tapping punch over and over again or kick over and over again for Chun-Li. I don't know how to do any of Zangief's moves. Mm-hmm. The one move that he's really famous for, the spinning pile driver, which is pretty much a one-hit kill, you have to be right next to the guy and do a full rotation on the joystick and hit punch. I have never seen a human being pull it off. Only the computer. Hmm. I have never seen a single person ever pull it off. Zangief is the character you tell someone else to play (laughs) if you're not good at the game and you don't want to get squashed in 10 seconds. Hmm. And that's what is so frustrating is that he should be the best character in the game. By far, I should want to play the guy who's suplexing people. That's fucking (laughs) awesome. But I can't. And you've seen me try to play Zangief a bunch of times. It's like, oh, man, it's like being a compulsive gambler. You just know you're going to lose and dig yourself deeper into the hole. But you just want to win so badly, even though you know the range of potential victory is just so narrow. And that's why Zangief is my low point. 
That's a sad story, Mike. <laughs> Nathan, what's your low point? Okay, so I have a, a couple of honorable mentions here, and my actual low point is kind of a bummer. So the first one is I actually shared Sam's uh, low point, the movie uh, that was like, uh, along with Super Mario Brothers. Eh. Another one that I considered was insert fighting game name here for Game Boy. Uh, <laughs> uh, have you guys ever tried playing Killer Instinct for the Game Boy? No. It, it's not great. No. <laughs> it's um, not great. Paul quote. Yeah, those are some amazing games that if you have the time and the money and you feel like being really bummed out, you can play some Game Boy fighting <laughs> games. But my, my actual low point for the fighting game genre as a whole was the controversy that came out a few years ago in the fighting game community where female characters were being marginalized and pushed out and bullied out of the competitions by other players who just felt like it was part of the game to have this sort of shit-talking culture, which is fine, but obviously they didn't know the line. And um, that was kind of a black mark right in the middle of this resurgence of fighting games. So, I, I mean, I showed you guys earlier before the podcast, I brought in a copy of EGM from 1995, that year, eight of the 12 issues featured fighting games on the cover, and no other year came close to that except for 2009, one of the last years of EGM, um, when four of the 12 months featured fighting games. So it was right around that time that fighting games were starting to make a comeback, and they were becoming really strong, and netcode was finally getting worked out right. somewhat. <laughs> a little bit. Oh, that was the other low point, <laughs> was the fact that Capcom could never get their netcode worked out. They actually had to use the community source netcode. Anyways. Right. GGPO, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was unfortunate to see that at a time when we we really should have been celebrating this resurgence of a, a niche community that that came up. Yeah, that's a fucked up part of the, uh, it kind of segues nicely into mine. There have been some terrible things to come out of the fighting game craze, some really low effort games, of course, a, a whole host of them. But besides a whole generation of bland, like bargain bin knockoffs, I think my low point is far more personal. I was such a huge Street Fighter II fan when it came out. I, I probably spent hundreds maybe thousands of hours in arcades, pizza parlors, convenience stores, whoever had one waiting for the next person to come in and challenge me. And I got some really good boosts of confidence at a time in your life when you don't get a lot of boosts of confidence about kind of showing up other kids or, you know, even sometimes they were adults still trying to be kids. But there was always a bit of risk taking in those being in those places. Playing Street Fighter, I've been threatened. I've been slapped, tripped, shoved against walls, punched, kicked and pantsed. All of those things. Almost always against older boys, almost always because I was better than them. And the downside of the game that riles up so much competitiveness in people is that it brings an aggression out and bullies out of the woodwork for these types of games. And I can't tell you how many times after handily defeating someone else, they've turned to me and said, how about I fight you in real life? And I've got to tell you, it was very unpleasant. There were times when I had to leave the arcade just like trembling because I was afraid that I was actually going to be hurt. And at a certain point in time, I just had to stop playing the game because uh, in arcades because I was so unnerved by what I had to absorb. And thinking back on it now, I had so many happy memories that now are tarnished by that fear and anxiety that comes up even now when I think about it because of those assholes, you know. Unfortunately, just like our friend of the show and regular panelist, Roslyn Townsend, my low point has to be other people are shit, right? (laughs) I'm overjoyed to be talking about fighting games for so many reasons, and I hope that we can get past that because I still love Street Fighter, and despite having those memories along with it, I can still tap into what made them so great in my life. This is one of those things where the guy who's brought on to be kind of negative about it can't hold a candle to the people who are bringing the negative things who are fans. Because, well, 
you're in it. You see it. You have details. I had no idea this was going on in 2009. I, you know, oh, yeah. I knew there was a resurgence in fighting games. I had no idea it had gotten that low. Well, part of the reason why it's such a bummer is that um, when you have a niche group like this that starts to get into the spotlight, you don't want to be painted in a negative light. As well I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in your case, you experienced something that I was deathly afraid of. And that honestly kept me away from fighting games is I didn't want to be in the situation where I got good at it and then suddenly, yeah, do you want to go fight in real life? That's kind of what I mean by conflict avoidant. I didn't want that situation to come up. But to me, that was just an abstract thought that I thought maybe could might have happened. And here you are 25 years later confirming it for me. It's scary. It's terrifying. And I can certainly say from some real experience that nerds make some of the worst bullies. Certainly people in our generation, people that are in our 30s, remember a time where this stuff wasn't fun and mainstream and regular real media didn't cover it. But you get these kind of little alcoves of people that sort of all love a certain thing and many whom get made fun of, if not threatened for liking that thing when they move outside of that group. So we sort of develop this shared identity of victimhood and we take it out on each other. And it sometimes gets so fucking nasty that you would hope that these sort of experiences would give people a greater sense of empathy for each other, that I know what it feels like to have somebody pick on me and make me not feel safe to go do a thing that I enjoy. And it would only make me more welcoming to other people. But I've seen it sometimes create the opposite. And I've seen it in fighting games, which is why I was often afraid to even go near those people because it was all about showing someone else up. And it was like... I get enough of this shit in middle school gym class. I don't need to bring that here. Right. It's discouraging because we want people to like this stuff. We want more people to enjoy this stuff. And the last thing we want to do is chase them off and be assholes to them because the more people who like this stuff, the more of this stuff we're going to get and the better this stuff is going to get, the more variety we're going to get. Because the person who's a fan now that you scare away may become the developer who makes the greatest game of all time. That's true. You don't want to scare them off now. I mean, that's just bullshit. Very well said, Mike. Let's pull ourselves out of the gutter and let's move on to high point. Nathan, what was your high point for fighting games? Okay. So first I need to tell you how to spell a name. (laughs) Uh, That name is Daigo. It's D-A-I-G-O. And then I need to tell you to go to YouTube and search for Daigo Street Fighter. I think you might be able to say... Daigo and Street Fighter, and that'll be the first. That's the first hit. I, I, think, I, oh, I d- think I saw this. Daigo, Justin Wong, yep. Street yep. Fighter Three. I did. Yeah, so you can Google Daigo Street Fighter comeback, and it is one of the most amazing fighting game comebacks that you don't have to know anything about fighting games to enjoy. Uh, this happened at Evo, right? One of the major gaming tournaments. I'm not sure what year it was, but it must have been 2004, 2005. It was like the second or the third Evo. Yeah. yeah. And Daigo is kind of this legendary character in the fighting game community. He's one of the best. And uh, he was in this tournament. His character had literally zero health. The bar was completely empty. And in Street Fighter, at that point, if you get hit with a special attack, you, even if you're blocking, the special attack chipped will, out. will you get chipped out. Yeah, will take some damage. So he could be killed even by blocking. And the, his opponent did a super move, which is 20 some odd hits. And he had the opportunity to parry those hits but he had to parry all 22 of them he turned the game around and uh, wound up winning the match and just watching the crowd explode as that happens is uh, an incredible heartwarming feeling and it's it's one of the easiest ways for me to show somebody why the fighting game community is so vibrant and so interesting Hmm. 
That's you, beautiful. You made me watch a, uh, and I'm going to say made me, uh, you made me watch a, uh, a video that was, I, I guess, an hour and a half of Capcom crawling up its own ass about Street Fighter. That was the only good part. Yeah. They included mm. that video, yeah. and it was, like, like I said, I, you are exactly right. Yeah. I know dick about fighting games, and I watched that comeback, and I'm like, well, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, what was your high point for fighting games? Well, actually, mine is not a one-on-one fighting game. I've never been good at those. I enjoy them. I got to say that my high point is the 1992 X-Men arcade game Beat-Em-Up. Oh. <laughs> nice. The, with two screens? The two screens. you called it. The two-screen, six-player version was like the gold pot at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> that it was rare to find even the four-player version, but if you found the double-screen version... It was like a gift from the fucking gods. <laughs> I loved that thing so much. And this is because primarily I was a huge X-Men fan. And this was an X-Men fan before the animated series, which is really what exploded X-Men fandom and really brought it into a mainstream audience in a mm. way that you hadn't seen it before. But this arcade game was not based on the animated series that everybody knows. This was based on an animated pilot that I think only I saw because I paid $25 to get it on VHS at my comic shop because this was an age where nobody had X-Men anything. If there was Marvel merchandise of any kind, it was Spider-Man or maybe 10% of the time it was the Hulk. It was going to be someone who'd previously had a cartoon or a live action series or a movie, which for Marvel was almost nobody at that point. So to get X-Men anything, especially after getting burned by the LJN gauntlet knockoff for the NES, <laughs> that was the first time I got angry playing a video game after renting that from a local yeah. video store. Yeah, fuck those guys. Fuck Seriously. those guys. So this was a good X-Men game. I like Gauntlet. No, 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 no. No, no, Gauntlet is great. Gauntlet's great, but the X-Men knockoff of Gauntlet that was a terrible game, however, was not. Oh, basically, take Gauntlet, suck awful. all the fun out, and then put this veneer of, oh my god, this is exciting, to build up my expectations before repeatedly kicking my childhood in the balls. <laughs> okay. And telling you, no, you're not allowed to have nice things. <laughs> so... This game is a nice thing. This was the nice thing I was finally allowed to have with X-Men that wasn't in the comics. It was so weird because for the longest time, X-Men was one of the biggest comic franchises, but it branched out into nothing, not into action figures, not into cartoons, not into nothing. So this game not only adapted this version of a cartoon, which had all the characters I love. It had people like Storm and Nightcrawler and Wolverine. It had Cyclops. Like the classic look of all of them. And all the boss characters were like the Blob and Pyro and the White Queen. And it even had fucking Wendigo in it. Wendigo. This is like the murderous Sasquatch guy with a tail who yells his name all the time like a Pokemon. (laughs) Wendigo. (laughs) I fucking love this thing. And when you got up to six people playing the X-Men, at the same time, it was so exciting because... I'm playing these characters. I never got to do it. And playing them in a good game. So, yeah, it's repetitious, but there was something about the experience of getting to see six of these characters and just button mash the hell out of this cabinet with sometimes just six strangers or friends playing all six characters at once. It was just fucking exciting. It didn't matter if you're beating up lizard men or the Hellfire Club soldiers, but the absolute best thing in the game, and this is a thing that continues to make me happy to this day, is it had some of the best examples of bad Japanese to English translations of any video game ever. <laughs> and it's the moment in the game where you're fighting through the Savage Land 
and Magneto shows up to threaten you before knocking the ground from under you and you move to a different stage of the level. And right before he does it, he says, X-Men, welcome to die! (laughs) (laughs) And I fucking love it to this day. I got so excited when Xbox Live finally did a port of it and I got to replay it. It was so much fun to regularly, even at 2 a.m., play this game with a bunch of other people. And when he got to that part with Magneto, all the conversation would stop because we all wanted to hear the bad translation. (laughs) I love, love, love this game. Hmm. But that, oh my God, that six-player version with two screens, a video game with two screens, Mm -hmm. was the most incredible, mind-blowing thing that 12-year-old Mike Gillis had ever seen to that point. (laughs) Very nice. High point. (sighs) Sam, high point. If you can drudge one up. I'm going to have to abuse my privilege a little bit here. My original high point has been kind of poisoned, I have to admit. And I was going to say the fact that people now can make a living playing these games, because I can imagine that conversation 20 years ago. You know, you're pimply-faced. You look like you've smothered a Domino's pizza on yourself. <laughs> uh, you're in your room. You got your, your Super Nintendo hooked up, and you are totally owning Street Fighter. And your mom comes in and goes, why are you wasting all of your time playing that game? You're never going to get a job doing it. Well, mom, and the rest is history. The rest is well known. We can debate whether or not it's a sport, but we can't debate whether or not it's competitive, and we can't debate the money people are making off of doing it. Mm-hmm. And I love that. That tickles to the, the spite bone in me in a big way, and I love it. But unfortunately, knowing this about video game sports kind of poisons it for me. So I'm going to have mm. to bring it home. Mm. And so my actual eye point, which is less rehearsed than that little bit, <laughs> is Ask an Atheist. Everybody knows I do Ask it's an Atheist. It's the show Atheist. you're on. It's the show I'm on. Let me tell you Sundays here at Mulvey International Studios. Sundays are my Wednesday. I get up. I do writing from about 10 o'clock to 11 or 1, depending on when we're airing. I have the pre-show meeting at 1 o'clock, and we go over everything we're going to talk about, what we may talk about, what we don't talk about. Then I do pre-production, then I do recording, then I do post-production, then I post it online, and I get the data to the radio station. We leave the room, we go to post-show, we come back, I open a beer, I fire up my hacked original Xbox, and we fire up some weird games, and we just play weird games. Two of them, which strike me as appropriate to this, which I fell in love with, is a game called Ninja Baseball Batman by IREM, and I believe 1992. It's a, uh, I, I saw it and I'm like, it's Batman playing baseball? No, it's much better than that. It's a lot like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but instead of uh, Leonardo, Donatello, uh, Medici and whatever. Uh, it's, and and Cacciatore. And Cacciatore. Uh, it's Jose Canseco, Ryan Sandberg, Roger Clemens, or Daryl Strawberry uh, as masked guys who beat up baseball-themed everything. Wow. They fight in Florida, and Florida is the creepiest level for those of you playing at home. They start in Seattle, and they fight a huge plane because it's Seattle. Sure. They go to Chicago and they fight baseball Al Capone. And <laughs> and especially on my Xbox One. You mean your original Xbox. Oh, sorry. Yeah, original yes. Xbox. I used, we used to call them Xbox One and now they came out with one called an Xbox now One. Now you don't. It's fucking confusing. Now you don't. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> Microsoft can fuck itself. <laughs> um, anyway, Ninja Baseball Batman is just fucking fantastic because on my original Xbox, on my huge, horrible Celeron, the sound is broken. And so you get this avant-garde sort of Miles Davis soundtrack to Ninja Baseball Batman. I don't want it fixed. I love it. And the other game that we discovered just recently was something called Dino Rex by Taito in 1992. It's horrible. 
it may be the Plan 9 of fighting games. <laughs> There's people on dinosaurs, and the dinosaurs fight, and you have no idea what's going on, and the the, the controls are horrible. Like a, like a Master Blaster from Thunderdome sort of thing? A little bit like that. Okay. And the controls are terrible, and the latency can be measured in minutes. Or is it more like a robot jocks game? It doesn't have the awesomeness of... It's kind of like, yeah, it's it's okay. a bit like Robot Jocks. It's like the people of the Bonehead tribe are hunters. It's got one of those terrible backstories that you just love. <laughs> the controls are terrible, but the people who hang out with me at post-show just unearthing these golden turds out of video game <laughs> history, it's everything I miss from arcades in that moment. Nice. That's beautiful. Well, I'll, I'll just wrap up quite quickly here. My high point coming out of that dreadful low point is street fighter 2 turbo hyper fighting i mean i can't stray too far away from the source and say that it's got to be street fighter i mean i really wanted to come up with something that wasn't street fighter but here it is i think i played more street fighter 2 turbo than any other version of street fighter or any other video game for that matter it was for me the peak of the whole concept of the street fighter 2 playable bosses a more balanced set of characters some crazy new special moves that were inspired by like the rainbow edition some of the bootlegs and they all played at like this increased speed that made the experience like faster and sort of more carnal and it was also really the last time i played a fighting game with any really great fervor for some of part of the reasons why i was talking about before super street fighter 2 and the alpha series and then ex they all sort of came too late really for me And by then I was gaming on my PC and I never bought a PlayStation or an N64, so I didn't go for the Tekken or anything that came afterwards. Frankly, I spent a lot more time at home than at the arcades. And maybe it's because the decay of the arcades was more palpable even at that point in time, even in the mid-90s. But for me, gaming wasn't just about fighting games. I played every type of game that there was. And the consoles and PCs were surpassing the arcades with better innovation and longevity and Mostly, I argue, because they didn't have the serious handicap that was that sort of 90-second game rule that we talked about before. But with Street Fighter II Turbo, I was a next-level badass. <laughs> I certainly wasn't the best player in all of Southern Oregon where I grew up, but I was probably in the top 10. And it may be sad to say, but it was probably the thing in my life that I was the best at. And that, to me, is something to be proud of. And that's my high point. This has been a great conversation, guys. I really, really appreciate you spending the time to come out here on this rainy evening to talk to us. Nathan, thanks for being with us. Nathan Martin, just briefly tell us how we can get a hold of you. Sure. Um, so I'm on Twitter at Another Fluke. I also run the Seattle Retro Gaming Expo, and I do a monthly video game pub quiz up in Kirkland, Washington called The Question Block. So you can find out more at thequestionblock.com. Okay. Totally going. And I'll be there. Sam Mulvey, thanks again for being with us. No problem. And Mike Gillis, once again, thank you, sir. Thank you, Casey. And we'll see you next month. Radio versus the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at radioversusthemartians.com and send us your feedback at info at radioversusthemartians.com.